We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. I'll give you a moment to turn to Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of our Lord Jesus. As you're turning there uh, toward the beginning of his book called The Spirit of the Disciplines by the late uh, Dallas Willard, he begins early on by quoting from G.K. Chesterton, uh, the the Catholic uh, philosopher and writer. And Chesterton said this, It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, insufficient. It's that it's been found difficult and left untried. On the one hand, we hear from Jesus speak of Uh, following him as a free gift out of the love of God uh, for his people. Uh, In Matthew 11, we hear about following Jesus as a light burden, an easy uh, yoke, that uh, to follow him is to have uh, rest in our lives. Free, light, easy, restful. Uh, Yet on the other hand, uh, we hear Jesus speak about following him as cross-bearing, as a life of crucifixion, uh, Paul says in more than one place, to be putting to death what is earthly uh, in you. A life of self-denial. A life resisting temptation. Cross-bearing. Putting to death. Uh, self-denial. Resisting temptation. It's those things that are often found difficult, but oftentimes simply left untried. And as we continue now in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus shows us the way that this is done. The way to endure times of testing, trials, and resisting temptation. All for the purpose that our our faith might be proven genuine. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to God's Word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
Well, it's quite significant and telling that the first place that Jesus goes to begin his ministry after being baptized and identifying with broken and fallen humanity, the first place he goes is not to people. He does not first go to teach people or to heal people or to help people. The first place he goes is into the wilderness. And he goes into the wilderness, as we shall see, because there is something deeply significant going on behind the scenes and what he is fulfilling as the true Messiah. But even more amazing is not that he goes into the wilderness, but how he gets there. How does he end up in the wilderness? Just in the previous episode, we saw last week, verses 13 to 17, the end of chapter 3, what happens? Jesus has been baptized and the Spirit of God, what? Descended upon him. That's the end of chapter 3. The Spirit descends upon him, and you go into chapter 4, and it's the Spirit himself who leads him into the wilderness. He doesn't just find himself there. He's actually led by the Holy Spirit into this place. Uh, One scholar captured it well. He said, The Spirit is free to not only lead us into good things, but into confrontations with very hard things. The Spirit is free not only to lead us into good things, but into confrontations with very hard things. This may be our circumstance personally right now in our lives, in confrontation with a very hard situation. That may be the circumstance we find ourselves in as a congregation from time to time or season to season, into confrontations with hard things. Spirit is free to lead us in such ways. He was led into the wilderness. And biblically and historically, the wilderness has been a place of testing, a place of trials. It's been a place in which holiness has been sought after by God's people and holiness has been formed in the people of God. Uh, We think about the first few centuries in church history. Uh, In the third and fourth centuries, thousands of men and women headed into the deserts of the Middle East, to pre- really as a protest against the complacency and what they saw as kind of a lax spirit in the life of the church, following the formalizing and legalizing by Constantine of Christianity. Uh, church ha- history has given a name to these people, the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers. And their stories are quite memorable. Uh, think of St. Anthony, St. Anthony, a near contemporary of St. Athanasius in the 4th century. Uh, St. Anthony, after he had lost both his parents, he he renounced his inheritance uh, and his wealth. He was moved by Jesus' words in Matthew 19. If you would be perfect, go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and then come, follow me. So he withdrew from society. He went to pursue the ascetic kind of life. He went and lived in a tomb near his home village for about 15 years. That was not enough. He withdrew even further for another five years in complete solitude in the deserts of Egypt. He lived on nothing but the very little that people would give to him. St. Anthony. Perhaps the most prominent or heroic desert father was St. Simon Stylites. He lived near Aleppo in Syria in the 5th century. And he initially sought this life of isolation in the rocky cliffs in the desert regions of Syria. But he was 
continually pestered by people who are seeking his counsel and seeking for him in prayer. And so he began to build pillars. That's what he's named after. Uh, In Greek, pillar is stylos. Hence his name, Simon Stylites. He thought if he could not get away from the world or away from people horizontally, he would literally build pillars. His first pillar that he built was nine feet high. That was not enough. It was superseded by one pillar after another, eventually his last being about 50 feet high. He lived on a platform on top of this pillar for 37 years, uh, exposed to the elements. He fasted every year during the Lenten season uh, without food and with little water. I mention these desert dwellers or these wilderness individuals uh, not because they're kind of extreme examples or because they're maybe to us even a bit humorous. I mention them because not only that often in the wilderness it's the place where literally the wilderness or figuratively that God's people have been tried and formed and tested, but because temptation and sin and idolatry cannot be removed or avoided or overcome by simply separating yourself from the world. We are not merely safe spiritually because we are here in this place together, kind of separated from the world. Because one of the greatest battlegrounds of sin and temptation is not outside of us, it is within us. It is within our mind, and it is within our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Or as one of my closest friends has told me over the years, just remember, Will, wherever you go, you take yourself with you. Important to remember. Well, here in Matthew 1, the the wording of verse 1 is very important to pay close attention to. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, not into temptation. In fact, Jesus will later teach us to pray, Our Father, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. In the Lord's Prayer, our Lord leads us into wilderness places in our lives to be tested, not to be tempted. He does not himself tempt us. This is what the Apostle James tells us in chapter 1, verse 13 of James. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our Lord does not tempt Temptation has a motive behind it. Temptation is enticing one, luring one, in order that they would sin and fall. That's what the evil one is after. God does not tempt us. God tests us. That is, He desires to prove us, to shape us, to form us. And so He leads us into testing He does not himself tempt us. And as Jesus has fasted 40 days and fasted 40 nights, he is hungry. Uh, He's empty. He has 
hunger pains. And here we learn something all important about the way that the evil one works. We have to remember continually we are in a warfare. We're told and reminded of this through scriptures. There is warfare. There is a context of of war in our lives with the evil one and his schemes. And here we learn something about the way that he schemes. And that is that he comes at our weaknesses. Jesus is hungry. Jesus is empty. Then verse 3 comes. Then the tempter came and spoke to him. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He goes literally, in this case, at the stomach of Jesus. It's the place of emptiness. It's a place of weakness. He doesn't come to Jesus. He doesn't come to us usually at full strength. He comes in our weaknesses. It's how he tempts us. Do you know what your weaknesses are? He doesn't come in our strength or places of maturity. Often he comes in our vulnerabilities, blind spots, the places of weakness in our Christian character. Really, he comes to those places where he can most likely foster idols in our lives. That's what he seeks to do in his interaction with Christ. He's seeking to introduce lesser gods. Lesser gods. Satan is happy with you worshiping. He just wants to shift where your worship is in life. He just wants to shift, to alter the object of your worship. I'm always moved by the book of 1 John. Here, 1 John is a book that centers on the person and nature of Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him. It's five chapters. It's 105 verses long. All centering on the person of Christ and what it means to follow him. And the last words of a book like this are, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's moving. That means to me, in great part, that what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus is to be aware, is to be aware, vigilant of those things that are competing for our heart's attention. Those competing lesser gods vying for our heart's worship and attention. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, From one Christian writer, something I've found very helpful over the years. He lists examples of the kinds of idols, the kinds of gods in our day and age that are vying for our worship. Listen to these. I have worth and my life has meaning only if I have influence and power over others. I have worth, my life has meaning only if I am accepted by the inner circle. If I can get into this particular group. I have worth, my life has meaning when I obtain very nice possessions. I have worth, my life has meaning only when I feel attractive. Or because my team won. Or because I possess this title. Or because I read these books. Or only if this person accepts me. Innumerable 
are the idols, are the lesser gods vying for our heart's worship, for our value and our worth as people. And so the evil one wants to tempt you and me to place our value and worth in anything other than the Lord God himself. And so we want to see how Jesus himself resists the evil one. Because he's setting for us a pattern, and he's also accomplishing for us victory. So temptation number one, look at verse three. The tempter comes to Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God. What does the devil do? He's introducing the concept of doubt. If you are the Son of God. This is exactly what he did in the garden. In Genesis 3, did God really say, you may not eat of this fruit? Is that what he said? Are you really God's Son? Remember just what had just occurred in the previous episode, in the baptism of Jesus. Jesus heard the voice of his Father, You are my Son. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. Jesus heard that. Now the question and the element of doubt is surfaced. What is he trying to create doubt about? The word of his Father. Is the word true? Is the word true? Is the word sufficient? It's really a question about the sufficiency of God's word. He, he the, the evil one, is saying it doesn't matter if God has said you are his child. You need more than that. You need more than the word to confirm it, says the evil one. You need miraculous works. Turn these stones into bread. Then you will know. You need signs. You need wonders. You need miracles. Then you'll know. And when we are tempted, when we have doubts, what do we look to? What is our sufficiency? What is our remedy? It's not to be signs. It's not to be wonders. It's not the sensational, if you will. It is to God's Word. What has God said? What has God declared? It's one thing to believe that the Scriptures are authoritative, that they're inerrant, that they're infallible. It's another thing to believe that what He has said is true for me. And I know it in my life. Do we... Believe in his word, what he has said for us, who we are in him. And this is where Jesus goes. He goes to the scriptures. Quite remarkable with what Jesus is capable of doing, his dependence is upon the word. In fact, all three of his responses are not only founded on God's word, they all come from the same place in scripture, Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8. And we want to circle back around to that because the context is important. But what's this first temptation? Command these stones to become bread. Perhaps it's the temptation to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction through some kind of consumption. To try and satisfy our lives with consuming things, whether that's entertainment, 
material goods, food. Uh, Listen to Oz Guinness. These are great words. Our modern world has expanded the array of diversions beyond anything. Society itself is one grand diversion, the republic of entertainment, with our shops, shows, sports, games, tourism, recreation, cosmetics, plastic surgery, virtual reality, and the endless glorification of health and youth. Our culture is a vast conspiracy to make us forget our transience and mortality. We turn away, we tune out. Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness. Or as Ernest Becker said, he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. Will anything satisfy more than the consumption of the world's goods, uh, more than bread here? When Jesus answers the temptation, the question, there in verse 4, and says, man shall not live by bread alone, he's not saying man does not live by any bread. Right? We need bread to live on. In fact, Jesus will teach us in the Lord's Prayer, as we prayed together earlier, give us today our daily bread. Toward the end of Matthew, in Matthew 25, in the story of the sheep and the goats, one of the characteristics of true followers, one of the marks of Christian character, is feeding the hungry brother and sister in the Lord. Bread is necessary to live. But here, there's a different kind of food. There's a different kind of food that alone satisfies the human heart. Man does not live by bread alone, he says, but something else. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying there's true life that can only be obtained and satisfied by another food. The Word. The Word of God. And when Jesus says, but by every word that comes or proceeds, he's using a word that's packed full of meaning and life. It's a word that means ongoing, constant conversation with the world. Through the prophets, through the apostles, ultimately through the scriptures, God is continuing to speak. And he's speaking words of life and words of hope, words of redemption and forgiveness. And, and Jesus' words here in this first temptation give us real application. Application I've seen work in others and in my own life. That one of the primary ways to replace, to overcome, and to win the battle over worldly desires is by flooding them, flooding them with greater, godlier, much more satisfying desires. If you have struggles in your life, if you're tempted in certain ways, sort of white-knuckling it, our power is limited. But if I start flooding my mind and heart with that which satisfies more deeply, we indeed become more satisfied. And so really, the battle begins here in many ways. Uh, No wonder Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he says, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's holy and good and excellent, think, think about such things. Fill your mind with these things. And it's just what Jesus is telling us. Man lives by 
life-giving words of God. We have them. Do we feed? Do we feed on them? Temptation number two, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And the evil one quotes from Psalm 91. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Interesting, this second temptation is full of holy things. He's brought to the holy city, he's set upon the holy temple, and he's read to from God's holy word. Jerusalem, the temple, the word. Holy things. This is, this is more Jesus' realm. In a way, the evil one's not coming at Jesus in his weakness. He's now coming at Jesus in his strengths. And he quotes from Psalm 91. If you look at Psalm 91, this is a psalm that focuses on the protection and provision of God for all those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. But the devil makes a mistake. What does he do? He twists God's word here. And he's twisting the, st- the psalmist who, in that psalm, stumbles and falls with enticing Jesus to jump deliberately. It's one thing to stumble and fall and to know God's provision and care and protection in your life. It's another to deliberately jump to see how God is going to respond. That's what he's trying to get Jesus to do. To test the Lord in this way. And that's what he's tempting the Lord in. Kind of to use God. To try and manipulate God. And this happens in subtle ways. The the first temptation in in many ways is all about going your own way. Uh, what, what What can I consume for personal benefit. The second temptation is kind of twisting God's ways. That's what the evil one's doing. He's twisting the very meaning of God's word. And I think it happens all the time in the larger Christian culture today. Certainly happens in the quote-unquote name-it-and-claim-it theology, thinking all you need is a little bit more faith, And whatever your heart desires may be yours. That's twisting the truth of God's word. It certainly happens in the health and wealth gospel. uh, Thinking God desires for everyone to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable in life. It happens when professing believers think they can thrive in their faith alone. Apart from the body of Christ. Apart from the community that God has Uh, ordained and prescribed for our flourishing. Jesus' words, don't put the Lord to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It's really calling for a sincere yielding to the Lord. Am I trying to fit God into some plan and purpose I have for my life? Am I I twisting God's word, really, to to make that fit what I'm after? 
Or am I, am I sincerely yielding to, to God's plans and purposes? A second temptation. And then you have this third temptation in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only shall you serve him. Again, what does the devil do? He leads Jesus up and up and up. He's taken him from the wilderness to the top of the temple, even further now to a very high, high mountain. That's his goal. His goal is to bring you up, 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 so you'll see yourself as high above all the rest, above all others. The most important person. You're the most important person in the world. That's what Satan wants you to believe. Of course, the Spirit does the opposite. He caused Christ's conception and birth in a lowly estate of a feeding trough. He led him into the depths of baptism, which we saw last week. He even further led him down into the wilderness here of trial and temptation. Uh, This third temptation is the temptation to worship at the altar of success. I mean, all the kingdoms are Jesus's already. He rules over all. He's the Lord God Almighty. But bend the knee, Jesus, and all this will be yours. You'll have success. In some ways, we could say it's a temptation to make your work your God. Jesus came to save. He came to redeem people from all the nations. And now Satan is saying, all that is yours. You will have success. All that is yours if you will simply bend the knee. That is Satan's lure. I'll give you success if you simply sell your soul. Uh, Your work, my work, is not our God. Uh, Whether you're a teacher, or you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're a builder, a salesperson, or you're a pastor, uh, there's a significant difference between what we are called to and the one who calls us. Behind these temptations and behind this circumstance of this wilderness is Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. It's where Jesus has referred and quoted. And the parallels between Deuteronomy 8, for example, and Matthew 4 are quite remarkable. Uh, There's something deeper going on. Jesus is not merely giving us a pattern or a character to reflect. He is doing something on our behalf. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Look at the parallels. It says, You shall remember the whole way the Lord led you in the wilderness, Israel. Note, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He led you during these 40 years, Israel. Note, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. That He might humble you, Israel, testing you. Note, Jesus is specifically being tested. 
And he humbled you and let you go hungry, Israel. Note, Jesus was made hungry by fasting. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, that you would understand that man does not live by bread alone. Matthew's telling us that while God's people are led into times of testing, hungry, tried, that they may fall, that they may fail, but the Lord Jesus has succeeded for us. He will not fail us. Where Israel fell, where you and I fall in our lives, He is faithful. He's not only setting for us the pattern and the character for resisting temptation, feeding on the Word of God, exercising the spiritual disciplines like fasting that we see Jesus do, but He is accomplishing for us our great salvation. And I would encourage you to approach your own times of testing and even temptation as the prophet Micah did, as he expressed in Micah chapter 7, to do so as one justified before the Lord God Almighty. You stand righteous before God. And so in your times of testing, in your times of temptation, know who you are and what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you will not shrink, that we will not fall or be burdened by guilt and shame. Listen to Micah's words, he says in chapter 7, Woe is me, woe is me, the godly has perished from the earth. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of of your mouth. He says, as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon His vindication. Let's pray together. Our precious Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You that You have not only set for us in Your character the pattern for enduring times of testing, of trials, of temptations that we all face in our lives, but we thank You, Lord, most of all for what You have accomplished. As Your Word says in Hebrews, once for all, that indeed it is finished, that through the shedding of your blood, you have cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that indeed there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that this truth, this reality, would fuel us and give us life to know who we are or in strength uh, to live faithfully after you in response to your mercy and grace in our lives. Lord, continue to strengthen each of us and together as a body of believers, Lord, as we seek your will. And we pray, Lord, that we might depend and rest upon one another, carrying one another's burdens, encouraging one another, confessing our sins to one another. 
that we might know your strength by your Spirit. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.